welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm Maz, and I speak to soldiers, academics, refugees, peacemakers, and anyone else who's been touched by war, in the hope of demystifying, and most importantly, de-glorifying it. If you like what you hear, please consider showing your support by reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support us on our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get to today's episode, I just want to make a few points. You'll hear me talk to my friend Duncan, who is a former UK Army officer who later worked in a number of conflict-affected countries, including in Ukraine for the past seven years, where he spent much of his time as the OSCE Head of Operations for Luhansk. During our chat, Duncan shares information about rescue operations of everyday Ukrainians he and a small team of private citizens have instigated and have proven exceptionally skilled at. Towards the end of our chat, Duncan makes an appeal to you, the listener, to help support the work they are doing getting innocent civilians out of harm's way. Essen and I have already supported Duncan's GoFundMe page, and I urge you to do the same as well. As you'll hear in the intro, I've known Duncan for many years, and know that he's doing his absolute best to rescue those whose lives are in danger. Thank you, and now let's get to the episode. My guest today is my good friend, Duncan Spinner, whom I first met in Sarajevo in 2014. Duncan is originally from Sydney, Australia, but he grew up in Indonesia. He later found his way to Scotland before joining the British Army. He served in uniform for 20 years in air assault infantry, as well as in intelligence and defence diplomatic roles. After leaving the military, Duncan led civil society programmes, including a security sector reform in a number of fragile and vulnerable states, such as Bosnia and Herzegovina, Israel, Colombia, Jordan, and the Philippines. Between 2013 and 2015, Duncan worked as the director of the International Commission on Missing Persons in Iraq. This was during the height of ISIS atrocities against the Yazidi, where Duncan led an advisory team including DNA scientists, forensic anthropologists, archaeologists, and human rights specialists in the largest genocide investigation since Rwanda. Since 2015, Duncan has been working in Ukraine and for four years was the OSCE Head of Operations for Luhansk. While there, he oversaw operations including reporting of human rights violations and war crimes and engaged extensively with regional civil society organisations on operations in the Donbass on both sides of the front lines. He is currently deeply involved in efforts trying to capture evidence of Russian war crimes, supporting the extraction of at-risk individuals from behind front lines, as well as bringing in much-needed equipment and supplies into Ukraine. He joins me today to discuss the current situation on the ground and the work he and others have been doing to help everyday Ukrainians. Duncan, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Maz, it's, it's really good to, uh, to catch up with you again after, after such a long time, and, and thank you for having me. Absolutely, and, uh, and uh, yeah, good to see you as well. But uh, I never knew you grew up in Indonesia. Uh, how did that come about? Well, Dad's Australian. Uh, Mum's from Glasgow. And Dad uh, accepted a job in Jakarta to build the Jakarta International School, 
uh, oh, right. in around you know, 1973 or to 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 grow it at, at the time when you know oil and and everything was booming it was post Sukarno Suharto was um uh you know leaping ahead and trying to to bring Indonesia into the modern world and so building a, an international school to service the oil companies and all the the other private sector uh, foreign companies that were coming in was was a critical thing so so that's what we did and it was uh the first 11 years or the uh, you know, two years in Sydney, followed by eleven years in in Indonesia. Of course, uh, so, uh, and you of course speak Indonesian then. Bisa bicara bahasa. Saya tidak bisa. Tidak bisa. Saya sudah lupa banyak. Yes, I juga. Yeah, I I studied it for a number of years and uh, spent a, spent a year in Timor. So, uh, but but definitely a little bit rusty. It, it's amazing how uh, how it does melt away. So what? Uh, so then to Scotland after that, after the eleven years. Yeah, so I got, I got sent to boarding school um, in in the UK, mm-hmm. and whilst there, um, you know, obviously um, I, I became a British citizen at about that point, um, and you know, became involved in in British culture, Scottish culture, and, and my grandfather. Uh, I had three grandfathers. One grandfather was an Argyllan Sutherland Highlander, and he was killed by the Japanese serving with the Chindits in Burma. Right. Um, the other grandfather. Uh, was a padre in the Black Watch, um, fighting through uh, North Africa, Sicily, Italy, Normandy, and, and the Rhine. And then, num- and my third grandfather uh, was in the Royal Australian Signal Corps uh, and was in Darwin uh, when it was bombed. And you know, his two brothers fought in New Guinea. Uh, and so, you know, there was a really strong military presence uh, in the family, um, like in many families at, at that time, going back to the Second World War. Mm, mm. And um, and it just seemed natural. To join an army at the time that was heavily involved in operations because you know it's the 1980s and, and the australian army was you know really home defense at that point mm, um mm, with mm. sort of withdrawal from singapore and and all those sorts of things so the british army offered a more exciting uh adventure i think yeah absolutely and, and you've seen a lot of uh a lot of service overseas with the british army haven't you i i did um you know i was i was really fortunate to join um i joined at the end of the cold war i, I studied um russian or soviet economics politics and, and history at, at the london school of economics before going to um Sandhurst. and i joined uh, the army to uh, defend western germany against the soviet union um and then of course just as that happened yugoslavia happened so mm-hmm. you know the war came down and and, and the wars started in the post empire collapse so um you know it was off Yugoslavia Northern Ireland uh yeah a, a host of different places in, in different roles mm, uh, mm, primarily mm. as as a, as a light infantry uh on counterinsurgency operations right and and following your career so so what so why did you leave the army because you 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 were obviously on a on a pretty decent trajectory uh, and had well, a lot of experience yeah, I think you know I've I've always been a bit of a pirate. Don't really conform um, effectively. You know, having a a foot in multiple cultures is is an advantage, but it also means that you're never really inside one culture. Mm, um, mm. And so, therefore, uh, I would say that I, I couldn't really conform to the expectations uh, of a of a Highland Infantry Regiment um, that much. Uh, and I was frustrated by the constraints um, of the army. I'd been injured four times on operations, and when I made the decision to leave, um, I'd been commanding a, an infantry company 
or um, doing uh, other operational tours for almost three years continuously. So from April 2001 until July 2004, I only spent four months not deployed in operations. Oh, wow. And I've been exhausted, utterly exhausted, mm. emotionally, mm. physically. And of course, that, you know, 9-11 was in the middle of that. And uh, so, yeah, it was. I was exhausted. Um, and I things think, weren't going to slow down. Yeah. Oh, mm. exactly. Mm. And I, I remember being run for a job in Afghanistan. And um, I was thinking to myself, you know, I know better men than me that have done that job. And it exhausted and broke them. And I just didn't see how I, as an individual, could win the war, capture Osama bin Laden or anything like that. And so I felt that it was time to go because I was no longer in, in peak performance. Mm, mm. But you still did uh, a lot of difficult jobs um, in a bunch of different uh, difficult places. Well, one of which was Bosnia, which is where we uh, ended up meeting. But uh, the years in Iraq, I'm sure, would have been, well, gruesome is probably one word, but also rather challenging and difficult. I think, uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be in Yugoslavia before the war started mm. and then to leave Yugoslavia or Bosnia, Herzegovina, sorry, in 2015. So having seen a full spectrum of, of how the, the country moved. And the same thing happened in Iraq. I was there in 2004 uh, leading an Iraqi battalion, the Iraqi National Guard, uh, you know, in a full-blown counterinsurgency internal security role. Um and, you know, and height, for example, within the brigade area, I think the, the busiest day when we had 48 incidents in the brigade in, in one day. Wow. Um, we had, you know, in my battalion area of operations, five suicide bombings in the space of an hour um, and two against my company headquarters in the space of, of one hour. Um, and but then coming back to Iraq in, in 2014, uh, and meeting my interpreters from 2004 in Basra, who hmm. took me out to lunch uh, without any security presence whatsoever in Basra, hmm. and then telling me that it had been difficult, it had been hard, it had been awful, but we had done the right thing. And that was quite a cathartic uh, event because, of course, you worry um, about whether you've done the right thing. Uh, hmm. Did we do it the right way? Uh, did we do the right thing? Uh, and so, so that was cathartic. But at the end of the day, um, you know, out of that also came an issue because shortly afterwards, somebody tried to to murder one of them. And since that time, I've been supporting his process through British courts uh, to achieve uh, permanent status in the UK as a refugee. <laughs> so, God, yeah. you know, that's yeah. um, it's a long journey. So, from two thousand and four to two thousand and twenty-two, um, you know, Iraq and the people of Iraq have been part of my. Uh, DNA in some ways. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it really does depend on, I guess, in many ways who you speak to, because I, 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 I've spent a bit of time in Iraq in 18, 19. Um, and yeah, the, the, the diversity of thought of who should have done what, when uh, is incredible. And and on day three, uh, I had to evacuate a young female st local staff member of mine uh, because she had a credible threat to life by a Shia militia uh, that was at that point in time assassinating prominent female social media uh, uh, kind of influences, if that's the right word, uh, for Iraq. But uh, yeah, so it's just, so, so for her, things uh, things things that uh, turned south very quickly, as well as for some of the others. It's, it's I mean, it's a really complex complex place, Iraq. Uh, I, uh, yeah, uh, you've done uh, some of the hard parts. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and I was lucky enough to, to live in in Basra, in Erbil, mm. and in Baghdad. Wow. Um, 
so to get you know three, three different <laughs> views yeah oh completely yeah. three, three um places and and basra you know more conservative traditional and and also the crux of the war because of course they've been going through this since the iran iraq war mm. and literally mm. um you know and and uh, there's a, a friend of mine that you might want to speak to one day a turkish academic called mesut uya mm. who talks about corruption of, of war um and the way that it corrupts the soul the individual society in every single way and we're not talking about financial corruption but just moral corruption mm. and and you know the the collapse of liberal ideas because you just can't afford to uh stay liberal when you're fighting for your life yeah um and so basra really is you know the the focus of of war effort for you know almost 40 years now mm. uh in in conflict or on the margins of conflict baghdad you know large metropolis uh full of of a young thriving population but on the edges a very poor um you know disenfranchised um population and then erbil um you know which has its own identity its own mm. vision its own purpose and, and its own drive and energy supported from from outside and very much seen you know um as a very different iraq mm. so the, the three cities just just go in completely different directions yeah yeah it's absolutely incredible uh and and i do have to pick up on the irony that um you know, you said as we, as we opened up that, uh, you know, you, you went to defend Western Germany against the Soviet Union. Uh, and then after Iraq, you ended up uh, in Ukraine uh, for seven years where you are now, again, ironically, uh, defending, well, you know, not, not necessarily Western uh, Germany, but uh, certainly Ukraine and the rest of Europe against uh, Russia. How did you find your way into Ukraine? Well, I think um, I remember lying under the bed of my dormitory in a Scottish boarding school, listening to my Walkman because we weren't allowed to listen to Walkmans after lights out. And, and <laughs> oh, you're one of those. Well, <laughs> yeah. might as well listen to something really worthwhile and anarchic. So I used to listen to Radio Moscow. Uh, oh, and, yeah. uh, and it was full in those days of, you know, economic statistics. This is the, you know, early 1980s. Reagan is, is, is rampant and, um, and just listening to these descriptions about Ukraine, the grain harvest, the industrial output, the port of Odessa, and the scale, uh, and it just captured my imagination. And one of the reasons I wanted to study um, Soviet history uh, or Russian history um, at that time was because we didn't know anything about it uh, mm. at all. It, it was, you know, the only thing that we touched upon in in school was the Russian Revolution, you know, the rise of communism, but um, that that was about it. So I kind of my my interest was sparked aged about 13 or 14. Um and then, you know, as I mentioned, Yugoslavia, Iraq, Al Qaeda, all these things sort of meant that I never got there. Mm. Uh, <laughs> because, uh, you know, we just diverted on, on the journey. And in 2015, the opportunity came up to join the, the OSC Special Monitoring Mission. And I arrived in Luhansk uh, or Lugansk, um, which incidentally is, you know, just 200 miles away from Stalingrad. Mm. Um, so, you know, at, at the far reach of, of <laughs> that, that historical journey that the, the Nazis took. Um, and and it, it came true. I In the Donbass, driving past sunflower fields, the scale of which I could never imagine. 12 minutes to drive past one field one wow. day. 
Um, And of course, the UK doesn't have anything of that scale. And my horizons and my geography and and my concept of time had been compressed in this small island nation. Um, And so therefore, just seeing something like that was, was just incredible. And I instantly fell in love with the country, having you know, fallen in interest with it many years before. Mm. Um, and I decided that, you know, I would do my best um, to try to uh, prevent this war from happening, which is what our task was. Mm. Which was kind of my next question. Uh, how were you supposed to stop the war? I mean, well, and, <laughs> and, 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 and obviously, you know, l- l- you know, to be frank, obviously the war had never really stopped since 2014 either, right? I mean, it's whilst it while it has for us uh, in our Western mindset, uh, certainly not for the uh, Ukrainians and certainly not uh, Eastern Ukraine. Yeah, well, I think there were a number of um, so our task was to, uh, amongst other things, to to monitor and report on the facts, and you know, in, in military parlance, the in order to was <laughs> to uh, reduce tension and facilitate dialogue, mm. um, and within that. You know, there's a whole range of implied tasks um, to to extract from. And you had somebody that um, you had on earlier, Arne Dalhog, um, mm, was mm. my boss uh, at various stages uh, during this. And, and we worked very closely on the, you know, how do we actually do this? Well, the, the mission analysis was, was critical on that. Um, and so, you know, there was a whole range of things from actually reorganizing the organization in Donbass to, to be able to cope with the wide range of conflict drivers uh, and the wide range of potential levers that could reduce tension at the local level. And our argument was all about incremental gain. Mm. Um, you know, the tension in society, uh, and, and we worked towards the fact that, you know, we weren't going to prevent the conflict, but we had to work on uh, trying to make sure that the conflict did not become worse. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because obviously the conflict was already on. It's going on. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, therefore, you know, what were the uh, what were the drivers? How could we incrementally uh, reduce that? And it was about presence. Um, even though, you know, we didn't have any weapons, our presence and our reports might have a deterrent effect. And these were all mights and coulds and shoulds because we we didn't have any real uh, key performance indicators. We didn't have any metrics against which to um, to do this because you've got to remember this is the first time an operation of this kind had been launched in Europe uh, on this scale. Um, we didn't have any doctrine. Uh, we didn't mm. have the organization. We, we certainly did not have um, political free hands because the parties to the conflict were part of the organization as well. Yeah. Yeah. So therefore, it was pretty much very ad hoc. We used to get out of bed in the morning, uh, the sort of management, uh, have a coffee in the morning, say, how the are we going to get through today? You know, what are we going to do um, to, to face the challenges? So presence, I go back to that deterrence thing. So presence had a limited deterrent effect. And so we argued that, you know, every minute we spent on the ground in the hotspots was a minute that a bullet wasn't flying, was therefore a minute of reduced tension. And in that reduced tension, at some point in the future, the communities would not be as divided as perhaps they might be. Mm, um, mm, and, mm-hmm. you know, it was very naive um approach but uh, to be honest as we had no other tools we had nothing mm. Uh, mm. that we could do at, at that level mm. um and at the the diplomatic political level of course you know um 
there there was very little that could be done uh, between two countries that were set on a course that was, you know, diametrically opposite. Mm. Um, and yes. I'm not going to go into like the Steinmeier formula or, or anything like that. But you know, there, there was just uh, at the political diplomatic level, I think um, there was never a chance uh, for peace, uh, given that the two sides had different um, objectives. Mm. So I guess all you were then, well, <laughs> it sounds horrible to say, but effectively human shields uh, buying time uh, with the hope that the relationships between the conflicting parties would get so dense over time that conflict or war uh, seemed the less likely option or the uh, ultimately what Germany tried to do with Russia um, with its Ostpolitik, right, is to, is to intertwine yeah. Russia to Europe so deeply that war with Russia or Russia's aggression towards Europe, uh, the likelihood of that would really diminish. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's fair. You know, it's you know better a frozen conflict at the political diplomatic level than a, yeah. than a hot one. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know, if, if you were to sort of look at post-1945, we've got so many of these things around the world now that we're trying to keep a lid on mm. that, you know, um, that is it actually in the long grand strategic perspective, the, the right Mm. tactic and you know we i talked about compression of time earlier i think you know in, in liberal democracies and and liberal capitalist countries and societies you know five or ten years well that's a lid that, that's cool that works mm. Mm. um mm. because we can, we can transfer the risk to the next generation or we can transfer the risk to the local staff or we can transfer the risk to the know, next election to, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly mm. whereas mm. people in in other sort of less uh, compressed, um, less temporally compressed uh, mm, societies mm, mm. You know, are looking at it at the outcome in a, in a very different way. Yeah, that's a really, I mean, I think that's a really nuanced point and one that we don't necessarily touch on a lot because it refl- requires reflection uh, and, and understanding of our own vulnerabilities uh, because, you know, we, and I mean, when I say we, the West, uh, you know, you're spot on. We think in, you know, in days and years uh, and election cycles, you know, or, or or contracts, you know, whether it's uh, yeah. you know business contracts, uh, where it's whereas that's not you know the, the old uh, is it the Afghan adage? You know, you may have the watches, but we have the time. Uh, you know, we, yeah. we see we see time and time again how that uh, how that uh, how that plays out. Um, I mean, it's a it, it really is a tragedy, uh, especially given the benefit of the hindsight now. So maybe maybe I don't know if this is a hard question or maybe it might be an easy question, but uh, how come we got to where we are then? In your view, how come Russia pulled the trigger? How come Putin pulled the trigger? I mean, I can't see inside his his mind, um, but I, I think you know he'd been warning for years that he wasn't going to accept um, what we're doing. And, and in, in all dealings with with Russians historically, they don't really come to a negotiating table. They come to a table and tell you what they want, and <laughs> it's not mm. it's not there to be negotiated. And you know, and you have two radically different political systems, two radically different um, uh, methods of thinking, two radically different hopes and aspirations, you know, and, and so from a, you know, radical European perspective, we, we're thinking the best of, of the opposition, uh, and from the realist Russian perspective, we're thinking they're weak. Um, Pushy, and, yeah. yeah. And let's just push it a little bit further and, and see what happens. So, um, you know, in terms of uh, inevitability, I don't necessarily 
would I wouldn't necessarily say that all of this was absolutely inevitable. However, um, you know what was inevitable was Russia's um, objective of being a great power, uh, mm. and the ruthlessness in which Russia uh, seeks to uh, achieve that is, you know, uh, they've been doing that throughout history. Um, mm. All great powers are ruthless uh, when it comes to um, to trying to achieve what they want to achieve, um, and you know, I, I think we failed to listen to the signals effectively. Um, and we potentially, in 2008, we had the potential to, um, you know, put down a, a red line uh, by allowing Ukraine to join NATO. Potentially in 2014, had we placed an infantry battalion in Kiev. Um, you know, all of these things are, are potentials, but it requires forethought <laughs> and, and a view that uh, gets inside the, the other's head. Uh, and I don't think we, we achieved that. I don't think the West got inside Putin's head because we were distracted by Al-Qaeda, because we were distracted by oil, because we were distracted by climate change, mm. and a whole range of, of other things that face us as, as pressing and face our um, populations as pressing. Mm. You know, when I joined the British Army, the Rhine, I, I can't remember how many soldiers we had. But I think it was almost a quarter of a million. I can't remember. I don't, you know, that. Well, obviously, you're going to broadcast that, but don't quote me on the things. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, Someone will fact check us, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we're down to, to less than 90,000 because mm. we didn't see a credible threat mm. uh, on the horizon. And, you know, that's it. We were comfortable. Mm. Um, you know, there's NATO got fat. I think somebody, I, I've, uh, uh, I'm quoting a, somebody else now, a man called Robin Horsfell, uh, NATO got fat uh, and and took its eye off the ball. Mm. Well, it's, uh, you know, many are describing it as, uh, you know, the peace dividend. We 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 got fat on the peace dividend because, uh, you know, the when the war fell, well, it was the end of history, right? The war fell down. Uh, that was yeah. it. You know, democracy had won. You know, Fukuyama yeah. was uh, was the, the prophet and, uh, you know, that's it. Uh, so, I, I, and I, I really, you know, at the time, you know, I was only, 18 years old so i couldn't really argue because i knew nothing mm. um uh but i just didn't understand how anyone could see that there would be a peace dividend at the end of empire because mm. there'd never been a peace dividend in history at the end of empires mm. there'd always been chaos in the border regions um you know and barbarians or hordes wandering free and, and i really you know at that point i didn't have a voice i didn't have any uh uh would say credibility mm. uh and but i just couldn't understand how people were saying yeah everything's going to be cool mm. uh it's just it was just a hope a false hope to bring yeah. in star wars well uh, <laughs> well 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 at that point in time we were running away from snipers in uh, in sarajevo uh trying to mm. get out and uh you know get into germany as refugees so <laughs> it certainly wasn't yeah. uh, the end of history from our perspective either but uh yeah i guess it's uh, again the benefit of hindsight right uh, but this is a an interesting pivot on 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 some of the work you're doing now because we do know and as you mentioned on the edges of empire i mean we're, we're seeing something exceptionally horrendous occur uh, in Ukraine right now, uh, and with your experience and expertise in, in understanding war crimes, understanding atrocities, uh, you know, across a multitude of conflicts, I know that you are now in you know in Scotland, but you just recently had uh, had left uh, Ukraine. I think it was on the day or two before the invasion started. 
uh, right? Uh, but what are you what are you hearing? Uh, what is your experience? Because I know you've got your fingers uh, in maybe too many pies. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but maybe tell us what you're what you're seeing from uh, where you're sitting. What's happening on the ground? Okay. So um, obviously, you know, I, I don't have access to any intelligence. I don't have access to any special information. So you know, it's it's media and it's friends on the ground, it's former colleagues, um, and it's people who are, I'm talking to who are, you know, in dangerous places. I'm not going to specify where because I don't want to put them at risk, and I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a wee while uh, as well. Um, and, you know, the to comment on um, what's going on from... Uh, the media and what people are saying, this is the Russian way of war. They did it in Aleppo. Uh, they did it in Grozny. Uh, they did it uh, in Berlin in 1945. Um, and this is the Russian way of war. Um, and particularly if you read the Soviet general staff's debrief of the Cold War, uh, which is a fascinating book, and it's quite a light read, actually. But it's not You don't have to be a, a Soviet specialist to, to get through it. Mm. Um, you know, it talks about how... Um, the West, I, I don't even remember, flexible response was NATO's doctrine uh, at that time. You know, you hit us with a with a punch, we hit you with a punch, and eventually we'll get to thermonuclear warfare. Um, whereas the Soviet uh, general staff is saying, well, why would we have used the shaft of a hammer when we had the head? Mm. Um, and you forget that, you know, it was an ideological warfare. We we're going to whack you with nuclear weapons or chemical weapons and roll over your dead embers. Um, and that's the Russian way of war, mm. um, because the city is not an objective. Uh, and, you know, there's a first echelon objective, which is the city. And the mm. second echelon objective or the commander's intent uh, mm. is something far beyond. And so, again, we're looking at what Russia is doing from a Western liberal perspective, wringing our hands and saying, oh, my God, this is awful. And it is fucking awful. Excuse that phrase. No. Um, but um, from the Russian perspective, it's there to achieve an objective. Um, and that objective is not necessarily clear to us. And we are thinking, look, you know, Putin's legacy. Well, Putin's legacy, he's not measuring that in the next few years. Mm. Measuring that over the centuries. Mm. Uh, because we, we talk about, you know, time and perspective com um, earlier. Uh, and I think that um, it's a mistake to look at what Russia is doing and thinking that they're making a mistake. Um, this is their way of war. This is deliberate. This is cynical. The attack in Kramatorsk, uh, which is a place that I loved and spent an awful lot of time uh, in when I was in Donbass, was in accordance with Soviet doctrine. Mm. It's to create a commander's paradox and to overload the local defender so he cannot use his resources to defend effectively, to create a humanitarian crisis, uh, to uh, terrorize the population. So this is deliberate war against the civilian population. Uh, mm. And it's not a Russian mistake. It's not an error. This is the way they do war. Mm. Uh, it's the way they've always done it. And I think we need to look beyond um, this and start looking at it with a, a proper historical filter uh, and a proper filter of understanding uh, the Soviet war machine uh, to uh, to try to work out what he's actually trying to achieve uh, mm. and to not assume 
that the Russian Federation army has been beaten. Mm. It That's may have been yeah. defeated in tactical battles, but hey, we won every tactical battle in Afghanistan. We won every tactical battle in Vietnam. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I've, I've had, it really comes down to defining what success look, looks like from Putin's perspective uh, and whether we're misguided in what, what it might be. Uh, I, I recently had uh, Peter Warren Singer on who, who uh, you and I talked about briefly uh, about before we started recording, but we talked about the Ukrainian uh, victory of information war. And of course, by that, you know, the West celebrating Ukraine. But then also had Carl Miller on, uh, who, you know, cautioned against hubris uh, because he, you know, drew attention to the fact that what we what we in the West are seeing is the Western lens and the Western outlets, but we are not seeing the rest of the world. And he and Carl Miller in particular talked about uh, Russian information operations uh, in the BRICS countries uh, and that there's a concerted effort, it seems, uh, of shaping and influencing public opinion in those countries, which, of course, you know, we often forget that the West, as we know it, is 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 merely a, a, a percentage of the world's population, uh, and and not necessarily uh, the sole source of power, influence, uh, funding, etc. Uh, for you know the Tsar that, uh, that that is sitting in Kremlin. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just before the war started, I was reading. Um, a criticism of uh, of Facebook and its algorithms and the way that it cleanses the English language um, hate speech, but it mm. doesn't cleanse foreign language hate speech because it just doesn't have the capacity to do it. Yeah. You know, this is you know, um, and I think that's that's fascinating. Again, we assume uh, that this is an English from our perspective. This is a you know, it's an English speaking war. Yeah, from our perspective, you're right. <laughs> yeah, and there are six billion people who don't give a shit about that. Yes, you know, that's, that's, exactly. Um, yes, yeah, spot on. Yeah, and who might who might have an opinion or might be shaped into an opinion uh, that? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, you know, you've spent a lot longer than I have in Iraq, but uh, my eyes were opened to the power of Facebook in Iraq, where you know, yeah. Facebook equals the internet in Iraq, which which to me was just amazing. I mean, in Australia or you know, in Western countries, Facebook is merely one. Uh, source yeah. of information uh, for most people, it's a bit of fun. But you know, in Iraq, you buy your you buy your phone uh, and you get Facebook for free, which is your yeah. you know. But you pay an arm and a leg for the internet, uh, you know, for Google to Google something. Uh, so Facebook yeah. becomes the source of all the emotions, uh, and it's just yeah. incredible how much actually happens on Facebook. Oh, and and certainly, you know, when we were on the run, you know, at one point, ISIS was nine kilometers from my front door. In twenty, yeah, whatever the year was, I can't remember. Mm. <laughs> it's twenty fifteen, mm. isn't it? Mm. Um, twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen. Sorry, um, and you know the they were so effective in the use of social media to terrorize uh, the enemy, and and if you just absolute, you know, maneuver warfare um, experts because they would tweet or use the local equivalents of tw- Twitter to say, um, yeah we're one kilometer from this village and everyone in the village would run away when actually they were about 50 kilometers away and, you mm. know, then would roll up without a fight um, and yeah. the use of fear and, and terror. Uh, and there wasn't a counter to that. And I remember having a discussion with some British government representatives at the time. And they said, well, of course we can't counter this because we can't lie. 
You know, mm. we mm. Um, that's, you know, the, the, the restriction on a Western liberal democracy is that it has to deal in the truth and facts. Mm. Mm. Um, and and sort of, again, in, in timescales, well, you know, you cannot persuade somebody who's in fear of the facts. Mm. They are running because of an instinct and because of a rumor. Um, mm. And and therefore, you, your counter information in, in that tactical phase, the 24 hours, the 72 hours or, or whatever, has got to be as hot as the enemy's. Mm. Um, mm. But we, we are restrained ethically um, in, in doing that. Mm. Um, That's really and, and we also don't have the firepower. Uh, you know, when I say firepower, we don't have the, you know, the British or Western governments can't afford to pay for the the capability, you know, uh, to do that. Um, mm. You know, when you're, when you're paying, um, you know, government wages to somebody to counter disinformation against a, a jazzed up radical from whichever, um, you know, enemy grouping they come from, mm. Yeah, you're not going to win. Mm, mm. Cash, yeah, yeah. cash is power. Yes. Yeah, the yeah the the in the in the comparative costs uh, from attack to defend uh, is yeah. you know it's so cheap to attack in the you know in the cyber domain in the information domain, but to defend it is so so exceptionally uh, uh, well expensive. Yeah. Um, so you're now in in. Uh, um, Scotland, uh, and we started talking about some of the people that you're in contact with, uh, and yeah. I also know that you're trying to well, you're you're you're, you're trying to do a number of different things, uh, some of yeah. which are get people out. Uh, who yeah. are these uh, these people, and what do we mean by getting them out? Where are you getting them out from? Uh, why? Uh, and you know how? Obviously, within reason. Yeah. So um, I was the head of operations for the OSC Special Monitoring Mission in Luhansk. And mm. my, I was based in rebel held territory in, or separatist territory or non-government controlled areas. There's so many different ways mm. to say that, depending on, mm. you know, who you have to speak to. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, um, and in 2015, I, I read the SOPs, the standard operating procedures on uh, what would happen uh, if we had to relocate or evacuate. And it was clear uh, that we would relocate our staff to safer parts of the country, but not their families. Mm. Um, and so um, when the war started, I'd been evacuated a couple of days beforehand by the, the British government, which ordered me out. Uh, and I'm really grateful to them for having the prescience uh, of knowing what was going to happen and getting my daughter and I out of uh, Ukraine early, uh, much against my, my instincts. Um, and I think had I not had a child there in Ukraine, I, I probably would have stayed. Uh, but, it, you know, it was a, a sackable offence to stay uh, and a mm. contract and, you know, uh, as well. Mm. So I, I knew what was going to come. And on March the 7th, I established um, with uh, friends of the family uh, a safe refuge in the Highlands of Scotland. Um, and we've been working together ever since to, to move people into that area. And it's a really huge effort by the local community. My role in this is easy. It's just to to introduce people to that. But who am I focusing on? Uh, so we had approximately 800 local staff and their families. It's difficult to actually tell you how many people that is. But, you know, if you just do a sort of a, assume a, a nuclear family, you know, that's mm. two and a half thousand to three thousand people. Mm, mm. Um, and so when the war happened, um, people reacted in different ways. The leadership in different locations acted in different ways. Some did what was right. Some did what the rules said. 
um, and we had staff left behind. We had staff who missed the convoy. We had staff who were already trapped because things uh, happened so quickly. And the organization is bound by strict protocols and ethics. It's a bureaucratic organization that was never designed for this mm. type of thing. So I understood that um, they would be limited. So we established a GoFundMe um, page. We established a, a Facebook group um, to support each other. And we began sharing information and working on ways to, to get people out of hot zones uh, and to a place of safety and resettlement. And there's sort of, you know, several phases to that. Um, and uh, as a result, along that, you know, as they were moving and as we were moving, then we started to get other calls for help from people we never met before, mm. people who've been associated with the organization. And so it's becoming a bit bigger than Ben-Hur, really, uh, and difficult to, to manage. So, you know, mission number one of what I'm doing is to get innocent people out uh, from uh, a point of danger and to get them to a place where they can find safe refuge to become strong and to rehabilitate. Mm. Okay. Mm. And so just to pick up that? on that, oh, sorry. So, yeah, yeah. I was just, I was just wanting just to clarify, and, and given the fact that you said that you were working in the occupied territories or, you know, whatever name we call it, uh, but in, uh, in eastern uh, Ukraine, is it safe to assume that all of these people are now effectively in, uh, you know, behind the front line? Not everybody, mm -hmm. but there are. And, yeah. you know, and we have had... So if I give you an example, over the previous seven years, we'd had in my team in Luhansk, I, I think it was a total of three members of staff who were taken by hostile intelligence services, tortured and made to make confessions to things. And in the last two weeks, it's oh, wow. been three men taken and tortured and made to give coerced interviews on local television. And in fact, we have several people currently missing. Um, so that's, you know, and I'm not going to comment further on on that side of thing because there's there's you know uh, we are limited in what we are able to know and we are limited in what we're able to do on that side um and then on the other side let's call it um mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. we had people until recently uh we had um you know staff members stuck in kerson staff members stuck in in mariupol and there are different efforts to help um to rescue people there uh, it all costs money, uh, and that money comes from individuals in the organization providing money into the GoFundMe uh, that we've got because the organization will not, and they're calling this people smuggling or human trafficking, will not pay to rescue its own staff. Wow. And the reason those staff are stuck there is because the organization's SOPs did not allow for them to be relocated with their families, and so they chose to stay with their families. And I think this is an absolute moral abrogation of their duty to their staff. Uh, and although they, you know, are working now to do certain things, uh, this is the gap that we are filling. And I work with a small team of volunteers from the organization, uh, both local and international staff. And it's our, uh, we are working not at cross purposes to the organization, but in parallel or in tandem uh, to try to get people out from danger zones. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, in the last two weeks, we've managed to get 14 people out of Kherson and Mariupol uh, to oh, places wow. of safety. Out of Mariupol as well. I mean, I, I, I suspect yeah. that's, uh, that picture in Mariupol is, uh, well, today's the 17th of April, uh, and I think that picture is uh, rapidly changing. Are you, are you still able to get people out of Mariupol, or is that window so, closed? 
that window is, is from Mariupol City, pretty much closed. Um, you know, I've been working with a number of uh, veterans from different armies around the world and volunteers who were inside Mariupol um, who were able to move people um, at risk, exceptionally high risk to themselves. Um, and now we are even limited at being able to give proof of life. So mm -hmm. we have an awful lot of calls in the darkness saying, please, can you find my uncle? Please, can you find my mother? Um, can you prove that she's alive? Is she alive? We haven't heard from her since the 2nd of March. And it's heartbreaking um, because two weeks ago, it was possible to, to start looking for people. And now it's, it's not possible to give anybody any hope or to close that, that loop. Um, and that, I, I think, is the most heartbreaking part of it, is that you know a service that we were able to offer in a limited way is now dead. Mm. and some of the people that we're working with are not with us anymore um, to do that. Uh, and so therefore it's um, as, as the Russian horde advances, um, we, these opportunities close down mm. to help people and to find people. That's uh, that sounds absolutely uh, uh, horrific. Um, and, I, and I just can't even imagine what some of these people have gone through. Uh, but just one point I want to pick up on, you're not formally supported by any organisations, uh, but I also want to make the point that, you know, just to pick up on the point that some of the people you're working with are some of the most highly qualified people. So this is not a band of... Uh, just to, just to give our listeners an understanding, this is not a band of amateurs uh, that are trying to, you know, <laughs> tinker around the edges. Uh, you've got some of the most hardened warriors uh, that are doing the hard yards in the front on the front lines, uh, as well as some exceptionally competent people with with often decades, well, like yourself, decades of experience working in these uh, conflict affected areas. the The only difference now, I guess, is that this is funded by the people. It is not funded or sanctioned by any state or formal organization because to do so would ultimately be breach of their ethical uh, responsibilities or if it was a, a nation state that was funding you uh, it could potentially uh, worsen the relations or tensions already existing with russia is that broadly uh, how, you know what i'm hearing yeah absolutely you know i established the fund anticipating because i knew the organization and I knew the boundaries that it has. So I, I established the fund uh, because I knew they would be restricted. And mm. even if they were unrestricted, they would still be slow in their decision-making. And, you know, we are in a kinetic maneuver war, which requires rapid decision-making and requires us to establish a tempo uh, that can defeat the enemy's decision action cycle. And, you know, and part of that is, and, you know, we have had successes and we have had losses in what we're doing. Um, you know, we, uh, and I, I can't go into the, the losses at the moment because they're still sensitive. And what, I, what do I mean by losses? You know, we have failed to move people in time um, and therefore have lost the opportunity to move them um, and because we didn't establish effective tempo against the enemy's decision action mm. cycle. Mm -hmm. um, we are all private citizens. 
Uh, you know, there is not a single person here being funded by the state to do all this. We are using our own money uh, to do this. Um, and all of us, you know, lost our jobs on March 31st uh, mm-hmm. as well when the when the mandate uh, ended. Uh, and so we're relying on friends, family uh, to get things going. Um, let me give you an example of, you know, if if we were backed by a private sector organization, uh, there are rescue companies uh, lifting people in Kiev for $100,000 a person. Wow. That's the cost in Kiev. Uh, ours so far uh, has, if I was to average it out, and each location is is different, uh, we are looking at $400 per person oh, wow. to achieve the same effect. Um, and we're using a network of, you know, uh, our own network, our local network, and our experience. So the trustees of the money, the fund, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm nowhere near the money. The, the money is managed by uh, three women, um, one of whom, you know, two of whom are British, retired British police officers, one of whom worked in organized crime for many years. And then the third person worked in civil society for the United States and Afghanistan and Iraq and Russia and, and Ukraine. All of us work together, um, uh, together. So, you know, it's, and there's a sort of a, a board making decision on how is that money used. Uh, the priority for the money is, you know, saving life. Uh, and that's it. And that those costs, I, I would say that we probably have over 100 people currently in mortal danger mm. uh, from the staff. And the window of opportunity to help them is closing rapidly. Um, and, you know, that's so, you know, we work at $400 per person. Mm. <laughs> that's, mm. Mm. You know, um, gives you an indication of, you know, how much uh, we need to work. And, and of course, those prices are different depending on which city you're in, yeah. Um, yeah, and where course. you are. Yeah. And and of course I will make the uh, make the point loud and clear to to invite my listeners to support uh, your cause naturally as, as I will be supporting it. Um, but can you so some of the people you've already rescued, just so again our audience understands, can you describe some of their experiences or, or who some of these people are, uh, what their backgrounds are, and 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 what they've gone through and where they are now. I think uh, when I'll, I'll, I'll describe somebody generically because I don't want yeah. to give away yeah, anything, a, a security perspective. But you know, they are somebody who has been in a basement for four to five weeks. Um, they've been under shell fire every time they pop their heads up above ground. You know, they have in order to get water or food, they've been a target. Um, they are our local staff, so they're drivers. Um, their language assistants, their accountants, their human resource people, they are exceptionally bright, well-qualified people whose worlds have been crushed in, in the last six weeks. Um, and they are on the run. Um, and so therefore, you know, getting them out is just the first step in the journey. Um, so, you know, step one is survive. And that's up to them. They survived. Step two is escape. And many have escaped on their own. And then others that we have helped. Um, 
Step three is get them to a place of relative safety. So we have transit accommodation that we've established uh, in uh, different cities inside Ukraine. Then there's a network of drivers to get them to a safe place because nowhere in Ukraine is safe. Mm. It's all relative safety. Okay. The first safe point is when you cross the border into a NATO country. Um, and that's the first safe point. Um, then, uh, then it's time to reflect. Mm. Uh, you know, we can transit uh, in. And I've, I've made contact with, a, with an Australian bloke who's helping, doing a brilliant job in Poland, um, helping people out of Ukraine. Um, and, you know, we're working together on, on a number of issues. And I've got a network of drivers, volunteers. So uh, you might, you and I have a common friend from Bosnia who's currently in Lviv with his hmm. dad driving people out. Hmm. Then there's a, a mate of mine from uh, my town in, in Scotland. He's South African. He's been driving people in and out. Wow. Uh, then my middle son, who's 17 and a half, is, is heading off shortly to volunteer and to, uh, to work uh, on the border. So we're using our friends and our families to, to make this happen. None, none of it is official. It's, mm. uh, you know, small bands of disparate, uh, determined, willing volunteers who are trying to win uh, the battle of getting Ukraine's or my friends, colleagues, and Ukrainian citizens to safety. Mm. So there's transit accommodation right across Europe. We've got safe houses in every single country in Europe uh, where we can place people for however much time they need to decide what to do next. Mm. And then for me, the, the final part, not the, not the final part, but the next part is getting them to the UK uh, because I think the, the UK, um, everyone in this group speaks English fluently. Um, and the UK offers um, a three-year stable uh, visa. It's, it's slow to get in, but it's, it's stable and offers really good support and safeguarding, which some of the other systems don't. So we get them to UK. Then they are resettled. Okay, mm. so we're in the early stage of this, mm. and the division is they're resettled, then they're rehabilitated and able to return stronger uh, to whatever Ukraine is going to look like in the future to, to help rebuild the country. Whenever uh, and if ever that actually might happen, yeah. Yeah, so it's a long process, um, mm. and you know the the work. There's a, a hot flurry of action to get people out, and then then it's holding hands and leading people out. And it's like you know what I've tried to describe. There's a huge. We talked about information earlier. And actually, for refugees and IDPs at the moment, there is too much information. You mm. know, they they're going on social media, and then here's your choice. Come to Portugal. We've got great beaches or come to Spain. Our beaches are better or come to France. Our beaches are marginally better. So, you know, there's, there's too much information out there and people are coming out of a burning house. Um, and you're asking them to read information or make mm. decisions whilst they've suffering from smoke inhalation, their clothes are on fire, they've lost their possessions and they can't actually see because of the smoke. And so what we're trying to do is to just take people by the hand mm. um, and say, follow me, um, and we're going to get you to a safe place. Mm. And once you're in that safe place, then start thinking about the future and, mm. and what's going to happen. I mean, as, a, as somebody who, who and you know, most of my listeners will know, I, I fled from Sarajevo uh, in the second last convoy that ever left the city. Uh, UN convoy, and then that what you're describing there is giving me goosebumps. I mean, I was a child of of, of ten, eleven at the time, 
Um, but I just I, I distinctly remember that feeling of uncertainty, uh, of not understanding what's happening around you. And I know there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids uh, going through that same uh, feeling now. Um, and of course, mothers mainly, because fathers, of course, can't leave uh, the country. And that was very much the same for Bosnia. It was my mum that fled with me and my brother because my dad was a fighting age male, and you know he was fighting um, in, in Bosnia. And I and I know that the same thing is happening in Ukraine. The reason I say that is because I, I, I really want to bring to light to our audience the, the plight of those people and how difficult those situations are and then how unbelievably life-saving it is to have somebody who's willing to give you a hand, uh, whatever that is, you know, whether that is, you know, take you to a safe house just so you can have a, have a, have a night uh, to, to, to stop and pause and catch your breath and let the adrenaline die down from literally running away, uh, to somebody giving you an idea about how to apply uh, for a visa to the UK or to Germany or to Italy or to wherever it is, or open the door ever so slightly uh, towards an option that you might not have known. Uh, and a lot of these people, you know, in, in, in this case, I think you're making the point is they're, they're perhaps fortunate because they speak English uh, quite comfortably. Uh, so at least have, you know, a... a a margin, marginal likelihood of, of, of being able to find a way once they land in a place uh, like the UK. Um, uh, incredible. Yeah. Sorry, John. I, I, and the beautiful thing is, uh, you know, in terms of human spirits, so many of them get across that border and then say, how can I help? Mm. What mm. can I do? Um, and they're still traumatised. And we've had difficult conversations here with people saying, listen, I, I, you know, and I, I talk to people who are running at a thousand miles a second mm. now where their brains are and, and they're saying, I can help, I can help. Uh, and so we can help people as well. And we are helping people that don't speak English. Mm. We have got, um, and with this, uh, uh, Daniel Rusty uh, from Melbourne, he's mm. got, you know, some disabled people who are deaf, who are blind. And now we've got signers. We've got people who can do sign language, mm. you know, in Ukrainian. Um, and, and so, um, you know, the people are crossing over the border, taking a breath and saying, right, what can I do to help? Um, and, and it's absolutely marvellous to see. And it's also, you know, uh, it, it puts things into perspective. When I look at some of my colleagues, and we've had some really difficult discussions over the last few weeks, I've lost a number of friends. You know, that one person who said to me, you know, as a human being, I agree with what you're doing, but as a professional, I can't let you do it. Um, you know, that's exactly the sort of attitude um, that uh, enabled the Holocaust to happen, enables genocide to, to take place. And it's absolutely marvellous um, to see the human spirit uh, fighting back. But as you know, conflict also brings out the worst or the weaknesses in, in people as, as well. Mm. Uh, and so it's been disappointing to see the reaction of, of people in privileged positions as well. Mm. Uh, and hence... Um, you know, the why we are fighting as private citizens to help people. Mm. And and just to now move to another area as well and, and another important piece of the work you're doing, you said the word fighting. I know you're not physically fighting uh, kinetically, uh, but you're also doing a lot of work in, in getting much-needed supplies into Ukraine. And again, using your network, the very same network uh, that you're talking about. So on one hand, you're getting people out from behind 
you know, the front lines or, or very difficult situations. And then on the other hand, you're also getting in some much needed equipment uh, to uh, the local fighters uh, in support of the war effort. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, the obviously there's a government to government activity, and you know, uh, battle winning equipment is going in. Um, and so I didn't want to get involved in that. Uh, but from my time in Bosnia, where I'd worked with Bosnian defense industries, for example, I, I knew a number of, of people. And on day four of the war, I connected the Bosnian defense industries with the right people. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, walked away from that. And I know that, you know, uh, for example, you know, at that point, X number of X was available <laughs> on a weekly basis to go in. Um, and you know, and I know that 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 is 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 going really well. And of course, there are huge amounts of of government supplies going in and out, and those are going to you know the government, and the government is setting the priority for where they're going. Um, and across you know Ukraine, though, uh, through this network, I get phone calls saying, uh, "Can I have a helmet, please?" Or "Can I have mm-hmm. you know five helmets?" And there's this idea. Um, you know, for in in terms of civil society, we want civil society to record war crimes or to bear witness to what's going on. Then they need um, personal protective equipment. Um, and to give you an idea of you know what does a brand new uh, you know helmet cost if it's a you know and there are different levels of ballistic um, protection, but to equip one hundred people with body armor and level four ballistic uh, helmets from the UK will cost 81,000 pounds. And civil society doesn't have that. Mm. Um, You know, and again, that's a huge part of the the fundraising effort is, you know, how do we, and and then to move 100 helmets costs exactly the same as moving five helmets. Mm. So somehow we're trying to aggregate, you know, this support and, and crucially, we cannot detract and must not detract from the Ukrainian government's efforts. So hence I have focused on surplus equipment. Mm. Um, and I tapped up the regimental association. Uh, so, you know, went into the, the Facebook group. And my inspiration, incidentally, is a film called The Sea Wolves from the 1970s about a group of retired blokes who decide to sink a German ship um, <laughs> in, uh, in, the, in the Indian Ocean. And so I, I hit up the regimental association. And So wait, and you did the Moscow? <laughs> yeah no. <laughs> no 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 wow no, no. That, that, that was that was an accident that, that was, that was yeah, oh, that's sea. right sorry that's right how was yeah. the explosions yeah. in the heavy sea and it was a plan yeah, my bad well after 40 years of existing in, yeah. in you know yeah. in yeah. waters around the world you know it it sank in heavy seas in the black sea yeah mm-hmm. yes yes um, yes my bad so, i forgot <laughs> um in fact it turned into the curse we shouldn't laugh but it is absurd um i mean it really is absurd the the information well, the information but, yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 it really is i think um sorry i didn't you know, mean to distract yeah, yeah distract you there no 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 but you know but the seawolves uh, you know and, and so i got onto the regiment association i said guys look you know and i it's probably the same in the australian army isn't it you you leave the army and you steal whatever you can mm, mm. Uh, <laughs> well i can't say that i'm still in right <laughs> well, it, for the it, it, sec- it, I'm, I'm in for the second time so you know make, yeah. of, that, make of that what you will <laughs> yeah. so uh you know so I, I put a call out and you know i said you know we've got a container come with what you've got 
Uh, it got two weeks. Uh, I set a target of, you know, equipping a battalion. And um, we equipped a battalion. Wow. Uh, to, um, now, I'm not, when I, and I, when I was talking to the, um, the defense command at that low level, I don't, let me focus on what sort of battalion we're talking about. Talk about mm. home guard. Mm. We're not talking about the tier one or tier two. These are guys that, you know, are at the end of the chain of supply. They're not receiving the stuff that's going straight into the front line. And as I said, I'm not going to detract from government to government efforts or the national priorities, but, you know, um, there are, uh, there's got to be confidence built. There's got to be stuff that goes in and, and the stuff that we supplied is, is not necessarily the best in the world, but it's mm. good enough if you yeah. haven't got anything. Yeah. Um, and it's a bit ancient. There were no pith helmets. There were no feather bonnets <laughs> from the Crimean War. Um, you know, but we, um, you know, we, we delivered a capability that enabled um, one battalion to increase its holdings by 110%. Wow. So um, of of PPE and, and other stuff. And we also moved um, medical equipment um, and so on. So, you know, that was 2,000 veterans or a pool of 2,000 veterans. Uh, and then we, you know, we were lucky. We got vehicles from a, a corporation, uh, fuel funded by private donors. Um, and this is this is separate activity mm. to what I'm talking about. So separate funding lines, separate management, yeah. everything. Um, and uh, moved uh, this stuff across Europe. And it was delightful. I think average age 56, uh, you mm. know, um, and... Uh, we realized that we weren't young boys anymore after 42 hours of driving nonstop from <laughs> Scotland to, to the border. Um, and, you know, but it was worthwhile uh, mm. and we're going to do it again. Um, mm. And we put out a call to compete with other regiments, ask them to dig out their stuff. And, and so far, you know, um, Brilliant. I don't know how that's going, but what is of interest is that there seems to be, uh, a flurry of things happening uh, down south in England with similar activities. So you know, um, that's it. And I, and why? Why is this important? Um, you've seen a lot in the media about you know what is this war about? Is it about Ukraine, uh, Russia, or is it something wider than that? And I think it, it's important for us to um, trade space for time in this war. Mm. You know, we are, and again, the information campaign, you know, who is watching this war? Who's learning lessons mm. from it? Who is identifying how they might, you know, go for a territorial stake across the Straits of Taiwan at mm. some point? You know, um, mm. yeah. who um, thinks that they're going to take an advantage because the West didn't do enough? So, you know, our role here uh, as former soldiers um is to identify that you know the the moral position the will to fight the will to win uh is critical and we need to do whatever is in our power to do that and you know i i'm not fit enough to fight anymore um and so and neither are, are the rest of the guys uh but by providing one helmet and we talked about incremental gains earlier by providing one helmet by providing one set of body armor it's an incremental step that trades space for time, delays what could be the inevitable, um, you know, in terms of a, a tier one war between uh, 
states. So uh, I think, you know, it's, I would say that it's a, it's a duty to try to do that. And then when you look back to sort of, you know, 1940 and, and that sort of thing, dig for victory, you know, tearing down, you know, iron railings to, to go on. Everything um, has to go in. We are, this is not total war for us. It's not total mm-hmm. war for the West. It's total war for Ukraine. And Ukraine represents liberal democratic values, a young, nascent democracy that's being smashed uh, by a fascist, repressive state. And, you know, if, if we don't think that's coming towards us, then we're very naive. Mm. So it's our duty uh, to delay that. Mm. And, and I really like the fact that you make this. It's a, it's a moral, posi- moral position, and it really is. Uh, and, and the other piece that's really important to me here is you're making the war individual. It is about the individual. It is not about nation states and and, uh, geopolitics. It is about an individual. You are supplying one helmet to one soldier who's perhaps forgotten because he is in the territorial defence and he's standing, you know, at at the end of his street, uh, you know, with uh, potentially an AK-47 that's, uh, you know, he's not the first to use it. Um, you know, now he's got a helmet. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, and I can tell you, you know, if I was to give you examples of some of these people, because they're my friends, mm. Mm. Um, you know, and they were professionals uh, in peace loving or, you know, certainly they were professionals that had never, ever touched a weapon, mm. never considered that they were going to do this. You know, one of my friends ran five kilometers one week before the war for the first time in her life without stopping. Mm. And now she's in the infantry Mm. after four days of training. Mm. And we managed to get a helmet and set a body armor to her. Mm. So, you know, the, um, the, it is. um, And and again, we, we forget it's the uniqueness of a social media war of a modern war. We talked about the, the impact of social media, um, you know, on offensive operations and defensive operations. But now it is personal. Everyone can watch what's happening. They can watch the atrocities. They can uh, get involved. There's there's an incredible bot that the Ukrainian armed forces have got, which enables you, you download the bot, um, you drive past a Russian tank in your car and you just film the tank and it geolocates and it automatically goes into the targeting system. Hmm. Citizen warfare uh, at its best, you know, asymmetric wow. warfare in the digital age. Um, and it's, it's powerful. Um, and, you know, individualizing this war, uh, for me, this is personal. This is my 12th conflict. Mm. And it really, really is personal this time. Um, you know, I've been a professional in every other single conflict. And this is the first time that I've been a private citizen in a conflict. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, and so therefore I can afford to make it personal. Uh, and I intend to make it personal and, and to keep making it personal because, um, you know, it is about individuals, individual freedoms that someone else is trying to take away. Yeah. And again, as somebody who's witnessed the horrors of war as a child and whose life has been intimately shaped by mortars and artillery rounds, uh, it is because of the moral compass of some that I ended up where I am. Uh, it is because of the moral compass of people like you who 
helped us get through Croatia, Austria, into Germany to find a house in Munich, to stay in Munich until we had a distant relative come and find us to be able to then put us up uh, into another uh, uh, friend of his uh, house um, where we stayed for a year, which during which year we didn't even know if my dad was dead or alive, uh, but we had hope. We had hope that one day we'd go back. One year turned into two, into three, three and a half. Then the war finished, but we had nothing and nowhere to go back to. These are these are really really trying times for many people, and it is the the attention and the care of those who are morally touched by this that absolutely change lives. Uh, so, uh, uh, and I'm conscious of our time. I know that we've gone uh, beyond what we originally agreed to. Uh, but Duncan, I just want to say thank you, firstly, for giving me the time to, well, speak to me today, uh, but also for the work that you're doing. Um, and my final question to you is how how can people support the work that you're doing? I, I think my, my first call out is, um, is to remember that this is a marathon and not a sprint. Okay. Um, that, so there's been a flurry of, of interest and people are donating and, and sending whatever they can and, and so on. Now start thinking about how you can sustain your support. So that's the, the overall uh, picture to, to private citizens. Secondly, um, we need cash. Uh, we need cash for our operations to rescue our staff. And, and I'm conscious that I'm focusing on our staff and their families. But that's because I'm limited in my capacity. I can't save everybody. Um, you know, as as this train hurtles through Ukraine with our staff on it, for want of a you know a better expression, of course there are people that are jumping on that we've never met before, and we're making wonderful friends with people that we never met before to to help them. And we're not going to say no to anybody, but um, in order to to move people out of danger areas, um, we need cash, uh, and we need that in our GoFundMe page which i will send you uh, mm-hmm. a link to mm-hmm. um and we need it now um window of opportunity is closing on a number of places um my target um just so you're aware we, we've got currently um we, we have had a turnover in three weeks of eighteen thousand pounds um we've got a target of sixty five thousand pounds to maintain uh the tempo of operations um and you know, all of this uh, is managed by a committee of three people with a lot of experience who are looking at how that money is spent um, and who are targeting saving life. And we, we have a sort of a um, every 48 hours we get together to look at who's most vulnerable and, and how we're going to spend that money. Mm. Um, so I'll just put out an appeal um, to Australians everywhere uh, and people around the world, you know, you think this is far away, but it's much closer than you think. Mm. Duncan, it's been wonderful to see you, notwithstanding the uh, circumstances, uh, but my hat off to you, mate, for what you're doing. Uh, keep your head up, uh, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Cheers, man. So you take care, and good luck with the upcoming baby. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please consider showing your support by liking and reviewing the show wherever you catch your pods. 
Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and until next time.